He's a good man. I'm a good person. She's one of the good ones. Those are fairly common sayings that we hear and use in the 21st century. I'm a good person. He's a good man. She's one of the good ones. My question for you this morning is, is there such a thing as a good person? It's actually a really important question to figure out how you're thinking. If you're a thoughtful, thinking Christian, if you're thinking carefully, theologically even. So I want to begin by getting you to to entertain that question. Is there such a thing as a good person? And I think it's one of those questions that calls for a question before an answer. And that question, some of you guessed, is, well, it depends what you mean. Or what do you mean by that? And then we're on to something. Is there such a thing as a good person? Well, if you read Scripture like we read this morning in Psalm 53, you're going to give what kind of answer? I think you're going to say no. Psalm 53, and that's quoted in Romans chapter 3, so it's Old Testament, New Testament. There's no such thing as a good person. Okay, we're going to answer it that way. But last week we were in Acts 11. Today we're going to be in Acts 12. But I thought we needed to go back to Acts 11 because of the, the scripture reading and it was on my mind. In Acts 11, it says this. And I would answer the question, is there such a thing as a good person? I'd say yes. Acts 11 verse 24, speaking of Barnabas, he was a good man. Oh, see, is there such a thing as a good person? And my response is, what do you mean by that? Well, all of this is significant because the Bible can say two on the surface level contradictory things that aren't contradictory if you mean something different by them. And a thoughtful reader of literature can understand these things. Do we read the Bible that way? How interesting. There, are, there is such a thing as a good person, but there's not such a thing as a good person. And you say, this is confusing. No, it's not. It's about categories. Basic Christian biblical thinking calls for you to have categories. The Bible's a huge book, different genres, different things said in different ways, intending different things. Depends on what you mean. And so we have a category for there's no such thing as a good person. And what do we mean by that? Well, like Psalm 53, like Romans chapter 3, no one is inherently good after the fall of humanity So no one can perfectly love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, perfectly pure motives, love neighbor as self. They're not inherently good enough to earn eternal life. There's only one, right? And his name is Jesus. And so we trust in him as our representative. So clearly there's no such thing as a good person. So when I hear someone say, oh, he's a good person. Well, I may accept that unless they're talking about religion and trying to gain eternal life. And then I get the twitches, right? The theological twitches. I know it's not true. I know it's not true. So there's that category, but there's also the category for like Acts chapter 11 and other places. There's relative good, right? Uh, People are still made in God's image even after the fall. Uh, God still does use the Holy Spirit to restrain evil. Uh, People can study God's creation, natural law, and come to some really amazing conclusions and think of all the good things that have come to us as a human race as a civilization, even from people who aren't Christians. But there have been so many good things and people have done relative good. And so you, if you're a Christian, you have to have a category for that. It's sort of like we could do the same uh, exercise with righteousness. 
There's none righteous, no, not one. That's true. And the Bible talks about those who are righteous. That's why I end up saying things like, well, if you want to go capital R, inherent, perfect, no. Jesus Christ, the righteous, yes. Lowercase r, there are people who relatively obey God and, and obey laws. So this is just kind of Christian ABCs, and I bring it up somewhat to uh, just be a hopefully a good Bible teacher and help you to be a good theologian, a good studier of God and His Word. Everyone is a theologian. Uh, some of us are better than others. Um, but to, to think in, in these terms, sometimes people think, I'm going to understand the Bible by doing word studies. And I looked up the Greek word good, and then I figured out it didn't help you very much. Context, context, context. What are we talking about? Even theological context. In our text, Acts 11.24, he's a good man. Well, not to gain eternal life or he wouldn't be trusting in Jesus and he wouldn't be called a Christian. There's maybe one other category before we move on and that would be the category for Christians doing good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, 2, 8, 9, you don't do good works to gain eternal life. But you do good works if you're united to Christ by faith, the fruit of your faith. And I would say those are real good works. They come as a result of the Holy Spirit working in you. Categories, categories, categories. It's actually important. So I come back to my question. Is there such a thing as a good person? And you're going to say, depends on what you mean. Right? Depends on what you mean. Now, all of that is just... Me doing cleanup from last week. That's one great thing about being a pastor in a church. At a conference, I couldn't have done that. But you know what? We didn't get to it last week, and there's so many verses, and I was going so fast. It was in my notes. I couldn't do it, and so I brought it up again today to kind of help you. I wasn't going to do it, but then Psalm 53. I took that as a sign from God. <laughs> we better talk about it. Let's be thinking Christians. Let's be discerning. Let's be able to have categories so we're not misled and misguided all of the time by the next verse that someone quotes. Yes, there is such a thing as a good person. Oh, maybe just one more thing. If we're talking about Christians doing good, relative good, or, or, or Christians acting the right way, I like Acts eleven twenty four when it talks about the Christian who does what's good. Here's what a Christian who does what good what does what's good looks like. He saw the grace of God and he was glad. So he saw there was fruit of the gospel and it made him happy. That's what a good person does. That makes him happy. And he exhorted them, the Christians, the new Christians, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What does he do? He encourages them. He exhorts them. Don't move past Christ. To borrow from John's verbiage elsewhere, don't leave your first love. You've come to believe in Jesus. Don't move from this as priority number one. That's what a good person does who's a Christian. I like to see that. I'd like to preach a whole sermon just about that, but I can't because today we're supposed to do Acts 12. So if you have a Bible, you haven't found it yet, you'll want to find Acts 12. And in Acts 12, there are three major themes. There are probably more than that, but we're going to focus on these themes in Acts 12. Persecution, prayer, and the sovereignty of God. Persecution, prayer, and the sovereignty of God we're going to see in this chapter. It's a great chapter to help Christians understand persecution better, to understand the place of prayer better, even in the midst of persecution, and to understand the significance of God being sovereign even over other sovereigns. Sovereign means king. 
one who's in charge, one who's powerful, one who's in control. And these Christians are being encouraged by the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of persecution. I want you to be encouraged about the, regarding the sovereignty of God, even amidst any conflict you're experiencing or will experience. This chapter is meant to help us. I hope it does. It's certainly been an encouragement to me. If you're just joining us, lots of you have been here through the series, but if you're just joining us, Luke, who's a medical doctor in the first century, who's a follower of Jesus, writes volume one, gospel according to Luke, volume two, Acts. It's why people talk about Luke-Acts. Uh, together. So he's the author of this book. He writes according to Luke chapter one. He writes to a person who's understood Christianity to one degree or another, and he wants to give them the details. He's a detail guy. He wants to give the history. He's a history guy. He does all of these sorts of things. We won't do it, but if you go back to Luke chapter one, so that the hearer listener would have certainty. They would have greater confidence that the Jesus that they're about to believe in or they already are believing in, we don't know, would have greater confidence, greater certainty. Christians aren't putting their faith in phantoms. They're not putting their faith in faith. They're putting in their faith in something that really happened on planet Earth so that they might have certainty. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, about that time, picking it up from chapter 11, verse 30, about the time Saul and Barnabas took support from a church in Antioch to Judea, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great and nephew of Herod Antipas. There are a whole bunch of different Herods. Even during the time of the New Testament, they're bad actors. Uh, all of them, whether it's having John the Baptist executed, whether it's wanting to kill a bunch of babies, or hating Christ and hating Christians, uh, quite a family tree that this Herod has. And I want to pose the question to you, why would a Herod, and we're going to see the Jews, why would they want to persecute the church? Why would he be against the church? Why would the other Herods be against the church? Well, they would be against the church because the church preaches salvation in Jesus alone. That's been an emphasis even in the book of Acts. And if you're trusting in something or someone other than Jesus, that's a rub for you. It's an insult to you. Maybe we should back up even further, persecute the church. And this this is what the Herods did. They persecuted believers anyway, sometimes because they spoke the truth. They believed in objective truth and, truth and spoke the truth like John the Baptist did, and he was opposed in the line of Herod's. Um, in speaking the truth and in speaking the gospel, there's something else related that leads to persecution. They preach righteousness. Okay? Christians have been known, and even before there were Christians, called Christians, known for being righteousness preachers. It just means law. Okay? You, you, you can't understand your need for Jesus if you don't know you're a sinner, if you don't know you're unrighteous. And so John the Baptist was known as being a preacher of righteousness. Jesus was as well. So what are you doing? You're telling people that they're not okay. You're telling people that their family religion is not okay if it's not okay. You're telling people that what they're doing is a violation of God's commandments. So that's a rub, and people don't like to be told that that's a rub. They don't like to be told that they are violators of God's holy commandments. 
in need of trusting in a perfect Savior. So that, that, those are some of the reasons. Now, we could also talk about the political side of things. So if Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the King, the Deliverer. Okay, the world is filled with, every, all the kings are Christ's. They're anointed deliverers. They're supposed to deliver, but they all, even the greatest ones, fall short of actually providing for all of the people's needs, protecting them perfectly, not being underhanded in any way, shape, or form, seeking no personal gain. There's never been a perfect Christ until Jesus, the Christ. So that's a rub. You would at least, at a bare minimum, if you are a king, have to say, I'm a lesser king. And you know what? If you're this king, you have to say, and not only am I a lesser king, uh, Caesar is a lesser king. There's only one who's the ultimate Christ, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate Messiah. This is a rub. This is a rub unless you're willing, by the grace of God, to say, I'm a sinner. I don't meet the requirements. So if you don't like hearing that righteousness, good news of salvation in Christ, because it is good news, but you've got to come to grips with the bad news first. If you don't like that and you're powerful and you're political like this guy, you're going to persecute. You're going to try to shut them up. The same, and we're going to see the Jews are on board with this as well. So the Jews are on board because they don't want to acknowledge that they're sinful. They think they can meet God's legal expectations. That's Romans chapter 10. So they don't want to hear it either. It's a rub. Consider where we are today. We speak, we, we want to speak what's true. We want to call sin, sin. We want to say salvation is in none other than Christ. And that's hate speech, violence, and who knows what else. In principle, it's the same. We might not be facing the sword, but it's a growing rub in my lifetime when I say there is such a such thing as truth. It is objective. God is clear about what is true and not true. God is clear about what is right and what is wrong. Even according to his natural law, not to mention scripture. And so that's wrong. Not that I'm not wrong about things too, because I am, but we need a savior. We need to trust in a savior. That's a rub. It's probably a growing rub in our lifetime. So what do we do when it costs us? Hmm. This is a good chat. This is a good chapter for that. It's an important chapter for that. Well, getting back to the narrative, Herod isn't just a little agitated. Verse two says he killed James, James, an apostle, one of the 12. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, because the Jews were happy about this, imagine that he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He executes James just like was done with John the Baptist in Luke chapter 9 by the sword. Now, sometimes the church is tempted, and maybe we should ask this question, I don't know, but sometimes the church is tempted to say, so is it, is it, is it us? Now, I think sometimes the church is pretty messed up. That's why I, I, I flinched and hesitated. When somebody criticizes me, I was told a long time ago by a mentor, the first thing you should say is, is it true? Instead of being on the defense. But sometimes the church has gotten in this bad habit when things aren't going prosperously. 
and things aren't wonderful and we're not getting accolades and we're not getting, you know, spots on the news in a good sense and, and be, being given the platform and we're not healthy, wealthy and all those kinds of things. When the world's not affirming us, we say, well, maybe something's wrong with our message. That's a real temptation, I think. I like the book of Acts because it helps us to, to not follow, fall into that trap. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? Why aren't they giving us positions of power? Why the rub? Maybe we need to change the gospel. The gospel's wrong. The book of Acts helps us to see, no, no, don't do that. No, stick to the script. Stick to what you said back in chapter 4. There is no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. That's actually the right thing. And just because there's radical, even may cost you your life persecution, doesn't mean that the gospel's wrong or needing to be tinkered with. Stay the course is a good underlying inherent message in the book of Acts. Maybe if there was no persecution in the early church, it wouldn't be very helpful to us because we'd think, well, everything was just fine and dandy. Everything was just wonderful, unicorns and, and whatever else. No, they're, they're getting the gospel right and there's horrific opposition. That actually can help us. James, the apostle executed. Just remember things like this. Jesus said to these very ones, you will drink my cup. Oh, that helps. It doesn't in one sense, but it does in another. Matthew 20, verse 23. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. I'm going to drop down a little, little ways in that text. That's John 15. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So see, see how wrong the thinking is sometimes? If I expect every unbeliever to think Pat Avendroth is wonderful, I think I'm better than Jesus. And we know that's not right. Sure, I, I don't want to just be a jerk about everything. I want to try to be all things to all people. I want to be kind and merciful and gracious. True, true, true. But we need to remember those important words from Jesus. Do you think you're better than I am? Remember what they did to me. If you're faithful to proclaiming the good news about me, you got to know it's not always going to be positive. Sometimes it is. We've seen the church growing radically in the first century. We see great joy and rejoicing, but we're also seeing the negative. So how about in the 21st century, even right now, we, we, we make sure we remember our history. Sometimes it's accepted. Sometimes it's rejected it doesn't mean we should deviate from what we've been called to do. Peter will go on to say later, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Okay, we better keep moving. Verse 3 in our text, Acts chapter 12. Hope you're enjoying this at least a thimble as much of it as I am. Verse 3 goes on to say, this was during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 4 then says, and when he had seized him, that would be Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Passover in this time, what did he call it? The days of unleavened bread based upon Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus. These two go hand in hand. One immediately follows the other. Uh, if it's Passover time, that means Jerusalem is loaded with people because it's the major religious holiday. 
But Herod is a good politician. Contradiction in terms, perhaps, at least in a certain context. He's good at this. He, he, he knows what's up. He knows the Jews don't like the apostles and they don't like Christians. They, they loved it when he had James executed. And so he's got Peter, but you know what? They're busy doing their religious things and it wouldn't be appropriate to do it now. And so he's going to wait for the perfect timing to have his show trial to get even more accolades, to get even more affirmation. Even Jewish historians tell us that this particular Herod was in really tight, especially with the Pharisees. And so he knows how to play his cards. He's playing his cards, popularity, power, prestige, not truth. He's going to increase his clout, increase his cachet, if you will, using timing. We're going to release this just at the right time. Sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me. That's how it's always been. Okay, now, camera shift. Camera shift, and now we're going to have prayer. Well, we're not going to. Keep your eyes open. (laughs) I hope we learn to pray from this. Okay, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Surely they knew what just happened to an apostle, James... I would assume that they were praying for him when he was imprisoned. That'd be a good assumption. But he's been executed, and now Peter is next in line, it looks like. So you know what we need to do? We need to pray. We need to pray to God. We need to we need to pray for, for Peter's sake. We need to pray for the church's sake. Remember that the, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20. Can the church survive without him? I think the answer is going to be yes. But you might be wondering... They, they play a really important role. So pray for his sake. Pray for the church's sake. Pray because he's a friend. Pray because he's a loved one. Pray for the sake of the gospel. We, we need to pray. And think about this. They, they know that God can deliver him. Go back to Acts chapter 5. Apostles are released from prison. They know that he can. They know that God could have delivered James been done before. They don't know the sovereign good will of God as it relates to timing. So what do they do? They pray. They pray. And that's the right thing to do. What will God's good and sovereign purposes be in this circumstance? Oh God, we want Peter to be delivered. Verse 6 says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, Luke on purpose is, you know, giving details, timing. Okay, we're, we're going to have this behold moment. And when Herod was about to bring him out, cue the special music, on that very night, Peter was sleeping. You can throw a lot of things at Peter, but I'm like, that, that's pretty good. That's classic. In Greek, that means Peter was a Calvinist. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. And what I, what I mean by he was a Calvinist, he believed in the sovereignty of God. So if you're a Calvinist, you understand. If you're not and you're offended, don't be offended. I'm just using that as 
modern lingo for he believes God is in charge of all things. And if you believe, in, believe God is in charge of all things, you may still lose sleep at times. But you can sleep like no one else can sleep. God's in charge. I don't think I would be asleep. And I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> I believe in the sovereignty of God. You're going to be executed the next day. He's sleeping? I love it. I love it. Peter was sleeping. Okay, details. Luke is the detailed guy. Between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door, were guarding the prison. This is on purpose. This is prepping us for the behold factor, for the wow factor. Guard them, guard him well, extremely well. This might not be maximum security, but it's pretty serious. And maybe this is is because of Acts chapter 5 when they were released. Supernaturally. We're not going to let that happen again. Verse 7, and behold, I told you we're waiting for the behold factor. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, one can only wonder why a bright light and angelic voice and chains falling on the ground wouldn't wake up the soldiers. Things that make you go, hmm. But that's what is recorded. Verse 8 then says, And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he, and he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know. That what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I'd be doing this. Sometimes you wake up and think, I'm so glad that was just a dream. He's awake and thinking, I hope this isn't just a dream, but it sure seems like it. 10 says, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate, details, details, leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I wasn't dreaming. Apparently, the Lord who is indeed the sovereign of sovereigns has more for me to do. It was time for my friend and fellow apostle, according to the sovereign purposes of God, to see Jesus face to face. Apparently, it's not time for that to happen yet in my life. I've got more to do. I've got more to go through. Verse 12 says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, otherwise known as John Mark. I've only known one John Mark in my life. Do we have any John Marks? The one John Mark I knew was a godly man, so I like that name. We're going to learn more about John Mark in the days ahead. John Mark, yeah, should I say it now? Nah, we'll, yeah, just ever so quickly. John Mark is going to be on board, uh, author of Gospel According to Mark, for all we know, the best we can tell. Uh, he's going to be on board, and then he's going to think ministry is too hard in a certain place at a certain time. Uh, it's going to lead to a rift, um, even amidst leaders, and then it seems like he comes back around, interestingly enough. Okay, you didn't need to know that now, but I didn't want to talk about it. That wouldn't be a very fun conclusion. 
So I snuck it in now. Okay. They go to this house, Mary's house, where many were gathered together and were praying. Remember back in verse 5, earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. That They're, they're assembled together. They're, they're praying. They're praying for God's will to be done. They're praying for his release. They're praying earnestly. Good things happening there. Trusting God. Then verse 13 says, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. It is his angel. Angelos. So Angelos can be a human messenger, can be a... Angelic messenger just means messenger. It's used both ways in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach everyone has their own personal guardian angel, even though people might use this text. I I tend to believe that's probably not true. Angels do guard us. The Bible teaches that. What do they mean? I don't know. I guess it doesn't really matter, but inquiring minds want to know. Was it his own personal guardian angel? Probably not. Was it an angel in their minds? Maybe. But you know what? If they really thought it was Peter's angel, I bet they'd stop praying. (laughs) Now, I hope they're that dedicated to prayer. You know what? Even if an angel of the Lord's at the door, we're just going to keep praying because we believe we should pray. I like that style. If I were praying, I would at least open one eye to see if it's actually an angel at the door. I, I tend to, none of this ultimately matters. They're basically saying, you're crazy. It's not Peter. It can't be Peter. There's no way that it's Peter, which is kind of weird because they're praying that Peter would be released. <laughs> right? It, it, it's a comical kind of scene. But it could have just... They could be saying, you know what? It's, it's one of Peter's messengers who's from his region of Israel. And so they do talk with accents. Could be that too. I don't know. Not worth a church split. She, she, she's crazy. It couldn't, couldn't possibly be him. We're just praying that it would be him. Go figure. <laughs> Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. They're, they're trying to kill me. <laughs> let, let me in, right? I'll bet he's knocking. <laughs> but Peter c- continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent... He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Who brought Peter out of prison? Well, our text right here says in verse 17, it was the Lord. But that's not what we read earlier. It wasn't the Lord. It was an angel of the Lord. Because if the angel of the Lord does something, it's the Lord's work. And who gets all of the glory regardless? That's something we need to remember. Sometimes people want to be all consumed with what are angels doing and what are they not doing. I don't know what they're doing and they're not doing. There are angels and they do things and they help us. But was it an angel or was it God's providence or was it the Lord himself? I don't know, but you do what Peter does. He has good enough theology to say it was the Lord that did it. And so he can say, glory be to God, not to angelic beings or anyone else. Go tell James, not the James who was earlier martyred, James, the brother of Jesus. 
who was a late bloomer when it came to being a believer, but he will become a leader. We'll learn more about James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother technically, in chapter 15. Why tell others? Tell others for encouragement. Go and tell them so they're encouraged. Go and tell them. Why else? So they can be bold. Go and tell them so that they would know preaching Christ might get you executed. True that. Preaching Christ might not. Preach Christ either way, right? Either way, do the right thing. And God in his perfect timing may say time to come and meet Jesus. <laughs> or God in his sovereign timing might release you because there's more for you to do. But this would be super good for the early church. I think it's actually super good for us. Do the right thing. Preach Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, return boldly, clearly as the Solution to people's greatest problem, and it may cost you everything. It may not. Only God knows. Only God knows. I love this quote by David Livingston, famous missionary to Africa. It's probably the most famous quote from David Livingston. I am immortal till my work is accomplished. I am immortal till my work is accomplished. I think that kind of sentiment reflects our kind of chapter. David Livingston didn't think he was going to live forever. David Livingston knew that it may cost him his life to be faithful to preach Christ. But he knew about the sovereignty of God. Like the early church needed to know about it. Like we need to know about it. You know what? When my work is over, I'm done. But until then, you can chain me to who knows how many soldiers. I'm not going to live a moment longer than God has sovereignly decreed. And I'm not going to die a second sooner. That's, that emboldens, that empowers, that makes us brave when we need to be brave. And Peter leaves. Peter leaves maybe because he's in danger. That's true. He leaves because more ministry needs to be done. He wants to tell more people so they glorify God. Okay, now scene change. You guys doing okay? Hanging in there? All right. Scene change in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Right? That, that was a day that Herod and the Jews had been licking their chops over. This is the day that the Lord has not made. They would rejoice and be glad in it. Right? We want that. No, I said not. If you didn't catch that. With religious zeal though. They're waiting for that day. 19 says, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Listen to this. Herod, the sovereign. Herod, the king. He's called a king. Lowercase s, we might say. Herod, the sovereign, holds the power over life and death. And now these will pay with their lives for their failures. They're going to be executed tomorrow. If you can't keep them alive so that we can execute them, we will have you pay for their supposed crime. This reminds me of that scene in Gladiator, the best movie ever in his human history. So 
Don't look it up now, please. Um, but there are some director's cuts that got edited out. You can find them on YouTube, and they've cleaned them up quite a bit. When the, the crazy Caesar has the archers draw their bows, and they're going to execute the two soldiers who let Maximus go, right? Maximus got away. So we're going to take your lives because you failed to execute him. We're going to execute you. And the scene is uh, its pretty masterful because you've got the archers on this side, bows drawn or arrows drawn, whichever one. I'm not, whichever one, I'm not an archer. And, and the, 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 the bows are pulled back. And then he's going to execute these two. They're going to execute these two guys. And that crazy Caesar's walking in between. And then they show, they show the, the, the archers are starting to shake. It's a sinister, crazy scene. What does it have to do with this? Well, not a lot. Um, <laughs> if you don't do your job and keep these for execution, we will execute you. It's a Roman kind of thing. That's why I brought it up. I should also say, since we're talking about Maximus and since we're talking about Gladiator, the best movie ever, <laughs> one of, how about that? Uh, in other deleted scenes, they're feeding Christians to animals in the Coliseum. And I thought it was fascinating. Ridley Scott, I think, is the director. I think it's Ridley Scott who says, well, we know they did that to Christians, and they did worse things to Christians, but that really wasn't our point in the movie, so we took it out. All right, I sanctified the illustration. We're doing okay. <laughs> now I have the soundtrack in my head. <laughs> Where were we? Um, yeah, we're in 19, right? Let's go to the second part of 19. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, Caesarea, and spent time there, which is what you would want to do if you were Herod, because you're going to go to your provincial capital, uh, the Roman uh, provincial capital, where you can do the things you want to do and you can get away from these pesky Jews is what you'd want to do. I'm going to, I'm going to retire for a while by the sea where I can enjoy all of my wonderful Roman kinds of pleasures. Historians think that a little bit of time passes, perhaps a few months, perhaps a couple of months. We don't know based upon the biblical text. Uh, but one Jewish historian informs us that after he goes to Caesarea, Herod holds a series of festivals in honor to Caesar which is a great way to just party it, party it, party it up yourself, saying it's for Caesar uh, back in Rome, and that way you have license to steal. Um, but that seems to be a couple of months later. With that in mind, though it's not crucial, read verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, two coastal cities above Caesarea. So he's angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. They're, they're in enemy status right now. They're in his crosshairs, if you will, up by Lebanon, if, if that helps. And they came to him with one accord. They're united. And having persuaded Blastus, that's a cool name, Blastus, the king's chamberlain, which is the one who takes care of the king's quarters, uh, but it's actually uh, also personal affairs. It's a high position. I think some translations even have translated high official. Maybe that's not the best, but it actually would include that. They ask for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, if you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with gospel ministry and the progress of the gospel in the early church? If you're wondering that, you're not alone. 
because some Bible scholars who don't actually like the Bible think this whole chapter shouldn't even be in here. Because what in the world does Herod going to Caesarea, Tyre, and Sidon, what does this have to do with anything regarding Christianity? Well, hang in there. I think it's relevant. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes him this way. Clad in a garment woven completely in silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous. He entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. That would be interesting and something to see if it's true. So he put on his royal robe, something to be seen, and he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration or a formal speech to them. It's a big deal. Verse 22, and the people were shouting. Think Tyre inside and think flattery. Think they need to butter him up because they want to be on his good side because of things like famine. The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And, and Herod, like, you know, the dog that he is, is just lapping up the flattery as if it's true. And then verse 23, here's why I think it's actually included in the Bible, and it's included here to encourage Christians even, about the sovereignty of God, the sovereign over sovereigns. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. How about that for an obituary? How about that for a tombstone? Herod, eaten by worms because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But here's, here's why I think it's in there. But the word of God, think synonym for the gospel and its progress in the book of Acts. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The contrast is there. To encourage Christians to keep preaching the good news of salvation in Christ, even if people want to kill you for it because they're so offended. Keep doing it because God is the sovereign of sovereigns. Now, fascinatingly enough, it wasn't like, because everything is always going to be positive and everything's always going to be good. That was not meant to be the message. Remember, this guy executed James. But at least it's a good reminder. You know what? God sees it all. God is not mocked. And just to encourage your hearts, he has the power to snuff anybody out at any time. And it's a foretaste of things to come, leaders. It's good to be encouraged by this. It's really good to be encouraged by this. It's a reminder about the sovereignty of God. It's a reminder about the glory of God. It's a reminder about the unstoppable progress of the gospel, provided it's really the gospel. It's a great reminder that everyone gives an account, that God is not mocked. Just to step back a little bit and encourage you to think a little bit more about this. Does this guarantee that the next guy in charge is a Christian? And everything's just going to go wonderfully. No, it doesn't. But it does remind us that God's paying attention And at least on this occasion, God wanted to make a a spectacle of this Herod. 
to remind Christians like you and like me and like the Christians who are there, you know what? Stick to the script. None of it goes without God seeing. And this is a foretaste. This is a type. This is a shadow of what Jesus talked about where the worm never dies, where there's always going to be suffering to those who don't trust in God's provision. It's a good reminder when opposition comes. Verse 25 says, oh, maybe one more thing about, do we have? Yeah, one more thing about that. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's interesting, in the book of Philippians, is that a true statement? Of course it's true. I'm going to say it's true. I don't want to get fired. Of course it's true. But in that very letter, he says to live is Christ. What else? To die is gain. And in Philippians, he's not sure if they're going to kill him or not. He's not sure. So whatever is meant by I can do all things, it doesn't mean he can live forever because he actually doesn't. I can do all things that he wants me to do (laughs) according to his sovereign purposes. That's why you've seen that meme before. And one of you has given me the coffee mug that says that I can do all things through a verse out of context. (laughs) Let's not be those kinds of Christians. These Christians weren't those kinds of Christians. Peter is freed, but Peter is going to be executed. Peter is freed. James was executed. But you know what? The moral is do the right thing and trust the sovereignty of God because he is the one and only one who is sovereign and that leads to boldness. That's the takeaway, big picture wise. Verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. We learned about them in chapter 11. Now they returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. To end, I've got a great verse for you, not out of context. And it's in chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 1, this is good. This is so good. 13.1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. In the church. Man, if it were possible for Herod to turn over in his grave... <laughs> Maybe the worms could turn him over. (laughs) Gospel does its work, even in the places you wouldn't expect it to do its work. So we stick to the script, right? To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the fact that you're the God of history, that you always have been, that you were in the first century, that you are now and that we are compelled by your grace according to your spirit to not look to ourselves, but to look to Jesus, the one who made perfect atonement for our sins so that they wouldn't be held against us, the one who's been raised on our behalf for eternal life, our guaranteed resurrection, the one who fulfilled all righteousness so that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. 
Such good news for us. We long for those we know and love who are yet to trust in Christ to do so. Please use us in their lives to proclaim the good news and help us to know that only you can change people's hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.